I'm Jonathan Clements, and this is Your Money, Your Wealth with Joe Anderson and Big Al Clopine. Our hunter-gatherer ancestors did not have to worry about saving diligently in 401k plans. For four decades, they could retire to endless rounds of golf, bridge, and early bird dinner specials. Instead, they were focused on surviving until tomorrow. And in many ways, that is how we operate in the financial world. We're focused on surviving until tomorrow. We consume as much as possible today. We get panicky over losses. We're brimming with self-confidence that we can win today. And all of those things are terrible for our long-term financial future. From HumbleDollar.com, former Wall Street Journal personal finance columnist Jonathan Clements joins us today on Your Money, Your Wealth with the secret to getting from here to financial happiness and success, defeating the instinctual urges ingrained in us by our hunter-gatherer ancestors, urges that often lead to financial failure. Plus, it's graduation time. Should you give the grad in your life the gift of a Roth IRA? Visit YourMoneyYourWealth.com and click Special Offer to download our Roth IRA Basics white paper for free. Then listen and learn why your graduation gift might actually be worth $2 million. But first, what are the chances that you'll be subject to an IRS tax audit? By Agent Will Smith? Here are Joy Anderson CFP and Big Al Clopine CPA with some silliness and some answers. We have a fantastic show. Fantastic. We do. I, I can't wait. You know, I usually hate it when I hear that coming right out of the shoot. Yeah, and you say it every week. I know, because I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> it's it's your patented open. Yes, it's this show's gonna suck royally. How and, about that? and luckily when it when the podcasts come out, they take that part out. Yeah, pretty because much. Because it's cheesy. But I'm pretty <laughs> excited today though, is that we have Jonathan Clements. He's a writer. He's been, yes. um, I've been following him for many years, uh, and he wrote for the Wall Street Journal for years. Yeah, 20 years or so. Yeah, yeah. close yeah. to 20 years. Uh, he has written about eight or nine uh, personal finance books. Right. Uh, very consumer advocate, you know. He's got a great website, folks, HumbleDollar.com, HumbleDollar.com. Wow, you're getting me excited. Yeah. So I'm no, I'm really excited. Andy, she she I don't know how she bribed him right. to, to come on. I was like, we don't hey. ask. She's like, do you have any interest to have Jonathan Clements on? And I was like, are you kidding me? Of course. <laughs> and then she's like, okay, yeah, great. Because next week we have Barack Obama, <laughs> and then the following week we're going to have Barbara Streisand. She's gonna oh. she's gonna sing the opening. I think Brad Pitt's coming on the yeah. week after. Oh my god, I can't wait. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I'm pretty excited. So we're going to talk a little bit about his books, and um, I don't know. We'll see where the the wind takes us. Yeah. Well, here's what I'm excited about. I have the 2017 IRS data book. Oh, wow. (laughs) This is is good stuff to open a show with. What do you got? Well, well, the first thing is... Are you going to just start spewing out numbers? I got 60 pages of numbers. (laughs) Here's here's what I want. I want to tell you a couple of, a couple of quick facts, and then I want to talk about your chances of being audited because I think that's that's kind of interesting. At least it is to me. <laughs> maybe maybe not to you and any of our listeners. <laughs> but I guess right off the bat, Joe, if you look at how much uh, our government raises from taxes, revenue, revenue, okay. re- re- yeah, three point three billion. Three point three billion. All right. Yep. And they spend seven point eight billion. Yeah, they spend more than that, don't they? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So from companies, it's about three hundred forty-five million. From individuals, it's about one point eight billion. So the individuals are paying a lot more than the companies. Really, that's interesting mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. Yeah. You would think these big corporations, corporations would, pay would be paying a little bit more. Right. Than three hundred thirty-four. Yeah. How many companies are there? 
I don't right? know. Lots, lots. But I would say, what not it 80% of all companies are very small businesses? Yeah, right. Maybe right. even more than that, 85%? Right. And and some of that's skewed because the pass-through businesses, S-corps, are throwing up, showing up as individuals. individuals. Yeah, 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 I think so. Then employment taxes, uh, Social Security is a billion, actually about $1.1 billion. So that's where our taxes are coming from. So huh. see, you, you were interested in that. I was. Very <laughs> that was pretty good. That was good. <laughs> Now, what about audit? Do you, do you worry about being audited, Joe? No, I don't really at all. You don't? You Not sh- even a little bit. You should. Why? With, with what you got going oh. on your return. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. We got Uncle Al over here. <laughs> just, just saying. No, there's and, nothing. Um, I'm, I have a W-2. It's, yeah, you know, I my schedule A is nothing extravagant. You know, so, got a little mortgage interest, some charities, some uh, state well, and local taxes. So fortunately, there's uh, there my million dollars of unreimbursed business <laughs> expenses. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the problem. That jet I bought no, they, for they, business they took, uh, that they, I take to Fiji. They, they took that out for 2018. <laughs> yeah. So you you're gonna have to come up with a new strategy. Yeah. So there is about 150 million individual returns filed each year. Okay. You're you're one of them. I am one of the 150 yes. million. Yeah. So they they're, they're going to audit about 900,000. Or at least that's what they did last year. Okay. So, so that's point, point 0.6%. 1%, yeah. So less yeah, less have than a, a percent. 60 basis points. 60 basis points, right? But there's certain cases where you might have a higher chance of being audited. Like for example, if your income is between 200,000 and a million. You have okay? a little bit higher chance what about 2%? If you don't have a, if you don't have like a pass-through business, like an S corp or sole proprietorship, it's 0.8. So it's actually not that much different. But if you do have a business return on there, it's 1.6 percent. Okay. So now, if you make more than a million, so I don't know if that's you or not, but oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so you would have a 4.4 percent if that were you. All right. So I got a 95 percent chance of being not being audited. Well, if I had a million dollar income. <laughs> That's that's so, a big if. So, yeah. <laughs> Let's start there first. <laughs> so, I, I wouldn't mind getting audited if I had a million dollar income. Come now, on. Now, corporation, C corporation, is about a one percent, so a little bit higher than individuals. But a partnership, S corporation, point four and point three percent. So, are so, they calling an audit? You know, those things you get in the mail saying, "Hey." Yes. So that's a, that's a really good question. So out of the 900,000 audits for individuals, about in rough numbers, 200,000 were actually you had to see an agent. Mm-hmm. 700,000 was you got a letter in the mail saying we disagree. Yeah, there's a discrepancy. Yeah, we'll yeah. Fix it. Yeah, either pay it or tell us why you don't agree with right. it. Right. Yeah. And that's not as bad as a face-to-face <laughs> with an IRS auditor. <laughs> with, yeah, with Will Smith. <laughs> what's, what's that movie? <laughs> uh, I forget. I know what you're talking about. Right. You know, I... Not Men in Black. Men in Black oh, is he's not an IRS agent. Even, he's like an he's an alien agent. Even I knew that it wasn't <laughs> Men in Black. <laughs> it was it's Men in Black too. No, what, <laughs> what is that movie when Will Smith is uh, and it's like dark. It's a dark, gloomy movie. Yeah, it is. And something bad happened, and he's like an IRS agent. That's and why he's I, helping people. Like, what the hell is that? Yeah, well, yeah. Well, well, you got a computer, right? Anyway, so I thought you'd be quite interested in those stats. Yes, that right? was that was very quite interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so, so do you if, want do you if, want to know how not to be audited? Yeah, just to do the right thing. Yeah. Well, I I would imagine even if you 
if everything's legit, you still could have the chance of getting out you of could. it. You could. You could, but here's here here's why you you would be more likely to be audited than others if you put the wrong numbers down on your tax return. In other words, your W-2 says you made $60,000 and you put $40,000. Well, guess what? The IRS has your W-2, so they, they're checking it. Sure. Okay, so that, that would be an issue. So mismatching, or maybe you got $10,000 of interest income and you didn't put it down, right? Or, or maybe you had $10,000 of dividends and you put it as interest income and they, they mismatched it, so they, or, or things of that sort. So mismatching is, is a reason you get audited. Another one, Joe, is when you have a million dollars in your miscellaneous itemized deductions like you. <laughs> that's a pretty high number compared to the average. So that's a more likely chance of being audited. And then, then the third way that you get audited is basically sort of luck of the draw if, if you are in a certain profession that they decide they want to go after. Like, for example, in the past, they have decided not all attorneys file accurate tax returns, and they focused on attorneys. Hmm. one particular year. Sometimes they focus on, in, a lot of times it's independent contractors, contractors because yeah. because not all of their income comes through on 1099s. And guess what? You're still supposed to report it, even though you don't get a 1099. Yeah. Cash jobs. Yeah, cash jobs, right? <laughs> Un- underground economy. Yeah, we're not recommending it, but it happens. Uh, yeah, Seven Pounds is the movie, folks. Will Smith, I believe it was probably in the late 1990s, early 2000s. 2000s. 2008 is what I meant G- to say. Give, give or take. Give or take. At 20 years. <laughs> 20 years. <laughs> I'm just going off of what Will Smith looked like from memory. Got it. Um, yeah. uh, he, he doesn't age. He, he looks, he looks great. Yeah. Man. Yeah. yeah. He's probably. You haven't aged either. Uh, thank you very much. I have. Thank you. Because I'm older. Thank you very much. <laughs> 40. Um, he's probably 40, right? 45? Probably. Will Smith? Probably, probably close to your age. Yeah. Right? Because um, he's probably a little bit older than me. But. I yeah. was a big fan of you know Prince Fresh Prince Bel Air. Oh yeah, yeah, right. So you you remember he was older than you when you were yes. a kid watching it. Yes. Okay. Yes. Right. So he's probably he's probably approaching fifty. No, he's probably forty five. Yeah. He's probably several years older than me. <laughs> like one, <laughs> maybe two. Yeah. I'm the same age as uh, Tiger Woods. Are you? Yeah. Wow. He looks pretty good too. And I know I always know what age you are because they take mine minus seventeen. <laughs> and I'm kind of good at math. <laughs> Should take the square root. Yeah. 1968. All right. Oh, he's older than you thought. Yeah. So he's going to be 50 40, this year. Yeah, 49. Yeah. There you have it. For the record, now that the Obamas have signed that Netflix deal, they've decided they're too busy to be on the show. And Barbara Streisand can't come up with lyrics for our opening music, so our guest next week will actually be Dr. Wade Fowl, returning to Your Money, Your Wealth to discuss how much you can really practically spend in retirement. To make sure you hear it, all you've got to do is visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com and subscribe to the podcast. It'll download right to your device and you can listen whenever you want. While you're at yourmoneyyourwealth.com, check out the show notes and transcripts and listen to previous interviews with investing experts like Paul Merriman and Larry Swedro. I'll see if I can't get Will Smith on the interview calendar, but in the meantime, let's find out from Jonathan Clements how to overcome the negative financial urges we inherited from our ancestors. Alan, it's that time of the show. It's my favorite time. It is. Why is it your favorite time of the show? Because we get someone way smarter than we are, and we actually learn something. Yes, we have a great guest today, Jonathan Clements. Jonathan is the founder of HumbleDollar.com. And uh, I don't know, what is he written about eight different financial books? And his latest is a really good one. It's How to Think About Money. Um, He has been with, or was with, the Wall Street Journal for, I don't know, 20 years. 
and uh, he was a personal finance writer. Go to HumbleDollar.com. It's extremely funny, very knowledgeable information to help you with your overall fin- uh, financial life. And um, I'm just happy that I, he must not be busy today because uh, he decided <laughs> to join um, us clowns talking about some financial planning. So, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Hey, I appreciate you having me on, Joe and Al. You know, you've been a journalist for quite some time. And when we talk about journalists on this show, when it comes to market crashes or booms and busts, when people read or go to the media, media is not necessarily their friend because they do different things. But in your instance, um, I, I think you've helped people for many, many years doing the right things with your money. And I, you wrote a pretty funny blog. I think it was back a little bit earlier this year when the markets were a little bit jittery. And you're like, well, here's some articles that you'll probably expect to come out uh, because of the volatility in the overall market, uh, which I thought was hilarious, by the way. Yeah, well, there's a basic problem when it comes to the media and the financial markets, which is there's, there's a disconnect, right? You have to put out a newspaper every day. You have to ups, um, update a website, you know, hour by hour, and yet what you should do with your financial life moves at a snail's pace. I mean, if you make one major investment decision a year, you're probably exerting yourself too much. <laughs> right. The fact is, you do not need to watch your portfolio every day. You do not need to be trading minute by minute. You know, you don't need to be paying attention to all of this nonsense, and yet newspapers still need to publish. So yeah, they're going to be focused on short-term performance, and they're not the only ones. I mean, mutual fund companies push the latest, hottest fund. Wall Street brokerage firms put out reports predicting what's going to happen to stock prices in the year, the year ahead. You know, analysts are coming up with new stock picks all the time. And we're just inundated with financial information that is really completely and utterly useless. So there's good information, there's bad information, but I think the average individual has no clue of what they should be paying attention to. Well, I think for starters, when you read the newspapers, when you watch CNBC, and with most financial radio shows, you should really treat them as financial entertainment. If you enjoy the markets, you get a sense of excitement watching them go up and down. You're intrigued by the hot money managers, the hedge fund managers, the stocks that are rising and, small, rising and falling. All that is fine, but it is entertainment and you don't want to be acting on it. If you want to be wise with your money, what you should probably do is sit down and read you know, a handful of the really good good books about money. Read some stuff that Jack Bogle has written. Read some of the books by Charlie Ellis. Read some of the books by Bill Bernstein. If you read their books, and they, they'll give you the basics you need to know in order to build a decent portfolio, and then somehow or other, you need to find a way to stick with it. And that's the real problem. Figuring out what to do with your money is really pretty straightforward. The real problem, and the reason why financial advisors are often required is because even if people can figure out what to do with their money, they simply can't get themselves to do it. Well, you wrote a a really good book yourself, How to Think About Money, and one of the key points in the book was uh, that people need to rewire their brain because we think about money, we think about investing perhaps the wrong way. Can you elaborate on that? There's this intriguing part of economics called behavioral finance, and what behavioral finance has done is detail all of the bizarre things we do when it comes to money. And some of the the key things that we do is one, 
we're overconfident. We tend to think we know things that we really don't. Two, we suffer from something called loss aversion. When the markets go down, that is much more painful to us than when markets go up. And so when markets go down, we have a tendency to panic and sell. And three, we tend to have an extremely short-term perspective. We're super kind to our current self, and we're not at all kind to our future self. And a lot of this comes from the instincts that we inherited from our hunter-gatherer ancestors. Our hunter-gatherer ancestors did not have to worry about saving diligently in 401k plans. For four decades, they could retire to endless rounds of golf, bridge, and early bird dinner specials. Instead, they were focused on surviving until tomorrow. And in many ways, that is how we operate in the financial world. We're focused on surviving until tomorrow. We consume as much as possible today. We get panicky over losses. You know, we're brimming with self-confidence that we can win today. And all of those things are terrible for our long-term financial future. Yeah, you, you write a, um, a pretty good picture. You know, if you think back of the gathering hunters and gatherers, you know, once you find something, you're going to gorge and eat the hell out of it. Because right? you, you don't know if you're going to survive tomorrow. And then the herd mentality is that you, you're, you're, it's all survival. Um, but we're still using those survival techniques um, 100 years later um, or 100 plus years later, right, uh, when it comes to our overall finances. And it's, it's really difficult. It's ingrained in us, and it's difficult to, to get out of that. So yeah, there are two parts of our brain. There is the sort of fast-moving instinctual part and the much slower-moving contemplative part. And most of the time, we go through our lives using the instinctual part of our brain, and it's an enormous help. The instinctual part of our brain tells us to jump out of the way before the car hits us. It tells us to pull our, way, our hand away from the hot stove before we get truly scorched. Most of the time, the instinctual part of our brain is a huge, huge help to us, except except when it comes to managing money. When it comes to mo managing money, we do not want to act on instinct. What we want to do is hit the pause button and allow the contemplative side of our brain to weigh in. And that can be as simple as being in the store, you want to make buy this thing right now. It's just, it's like the equivalent of walking into McDonald's and smelling the Big Mac. You just want to eat the darn thing. <laughs> and what you have to do to avoid spending money you can ill afford to spend is to walk out of the store for 10 minutes, walk around the parking lot, whatever it takes, and think about it and think about all the other possible uses of the money. Think about the bills you have to pay. Think about the goals you want to save for. And at the end of the 10 minutes, there's a good chance that you will decide that impulse purchase is not the right way to spend your money. And it's similar with other parts of our financial lives. When we're tempted to make that big trade because we think we know what's going on in the financial markets, we should hit the pause button, give it a day or two, give it a week, give it a month. It doesn't matter whether you act today and allow the contemplative side of your brain to weigh in. Brushing up on your financial literacy will also help you make better money decisions. While the contemplative side of your brain is working its magic, sign up for one of our two-day retirement classes in Southern California or learn financial strategies for turbulent times at our free monthly Lunch and Learn events in San Diego. Visit the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to sign up now. If you're in Southern California or visiting soon, you can get the tools and confidence you need to prepare for a successful retirement. 
Sign up for our two-day retirement courses or our Lunch and Learn events in the Learning Center at YourMoneyYourWealth.com. I do a lot of spin classes, and on these new spin class bikes, you know, they'll, they'll tell you how many calories you burn. And so this morning, actually, I'm on this thing, and I'm like, I got to burn another 100 calories, right? That, you know, I have a certain goal. And you know how hard it is when you're tired to burn that other 100 calories? And I'm thinking, I'm like, man, this is like just a stupid candy bar. Right? And so the next time I'm, I'm urged to, to eat something that's 100 calories, I'm like, I'm going to think twice about it because that was a pain in the ass to burn it off. And so when, when you're thinking of it, hey, I want the Big Mac or I need to spend the money or on, an, on the other side, I need to get out of the overall markets because I think the markets are going to go to zero. If you just take a step back and kind of, hey, have you been here before? Have the markets been here before? Um, you know, I, I think people would be a little bit better. But that volatil- the volatility in the markets, I think, is a lot harder for people to withstand themselves versus maybe a purchase. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? I think that is true, and the key here is not to sit there by yourself and stew on the question without talking to others. I mean, one of the reasons that spin classes are so effective is because you're in this room with other people who are also working hard, and you're inspired, and you feel competitive, and you really want to get the most out of the class, and you want to show everybody else in the class that you're working hard. When it comes to a lot of financial decisions, what we do is we make them in isolation without talking to other people. And as a consequence, you know, we often get it wrong. So if you're at the moment where you're going to go out and buy the new, the new Beamer that you can't afford, or you're at the point when you're going to sell everything and move to cash because you feel panicky about the financial future, talk to somebody. If you talk to somebody even if they're not a financial expert, they will probably help you to have some perspective about your situation. Simply articulating what you want to do will make you think about it and realize, hey, maybe my rationale for getting out of stocks and going 100% to cash really isn't that smart. The other great thing about talking to other people is that we suddenly feel the burden of their expectations. So, There's a reason when we make New Year's resolutions that we tell other people about them because suddenly we're committed because we know that other people have heard that we're going to lose 15 pounds, that we're going to exercise four times a week, that we're going to try to buy that new home by the end of the year. Suddenly we feel this sense of obligation and there is a greater chance that you will follow through. As I tell people, if I say to my wife, I'm going to get up and go to the gym in the morning. I'm going because I don't want any recriminations. But if I just tell myself that I'm going to go to the gym in the morning, it is so easy to roll over and go back to sleep. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that makes sense. <laughs> you know, I, I just thinking about this whole thing about the, the fear that, that, that sort of takes over when the market declines. And we really haven't had a, a, a market correction in, in a while. And uh, but it seems like when we do, I mean, just thinking in the past, uh, and because as you mentioned right at the beginning of the interview, there's so much on the media that we listen to, and then it's like you start hearing people say, you know what, the market's going down to zero, or it's or it's it's still, and and then you think, and then you hear people say, well, this is this is new, this has never happened before, and then you start thinking, well, 
I guess that's true. Maybe I should sell. And 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 it it, uh, it it's hard to make good decisions, I guess, when you're not thinking rationally. Unless you think that the economy will never grow again, that uh, you know we are going to be stuck here forever. We're never going to see further improvements in our standard of living. We're never going to see companies grow again. Why would you get out of the stock market? I mean, the stock market in the end is a reflection of global economic growth. As long as the, eco- the economy grows, the stock market will rise. I can't tell you which stock's going to go up, but I know that if you own a broad basket of stocks and the global economy continues to grow, that will flow through to corporate profits and eventually stock prices will reflect that. The problem in the intervening period is that people change their view on what stocks should be worth. Sometimes we think the stock should be worth 25 times earnings. Sometimes we think that they should be only worth 15 times current corporate profits. And that speculative return, the bouncing up and down, is what freaks people out and causes them to sell. But if you focus on the long-run economic growth and realize as an investor in the stock market, you're going to be the beneficiary of that, you should be a much more tenacious investor. So don't bank on figuring out whether the right price earnings ratio for stocks is 25 or 30 or 15. Instead of bank on the fact that the global economy will keep on growing. And if it keeps on growing and you're investing in the stock market, over the long haul, you'll be happy with the results. You know, in your latest book, um, the, the last um, step that you talk about is, you know, to win, you, you, you can't lose or don't lose. Um, th- tell me, what's, what's your thought process behind that? H- help our listeners to say, if you really want to win in this world of finance or retirement or anything else, you can't lose. What's, w- w- tell me more. When I think about losing, I think of it in two different categories. Uh, there are sort of the big losses and there are small losses. The small losses are the gradual reduction from your returns that occur every time you buy a mutual fund with high annual expenses. Every time you realize capital gain taxes and have to send off a check to the IRS. Every time you trade and you incur commissions and all the other transaction costs that come with buying and selling stocks, that is the slow financial death, the gradual subtraction from your wealth that occurs over time. But there's also the big financial death. What happens when you start to do things like not having disability insurance, even though you can't really afford to self-insure, i.e., if you get stuff with disability, your family's going to be on the breadline. Not having health insurance, uh, betting everything on a handful of stocks or a single sector of the market. With these strategies like these, you know, you can roll along for years, completely oblivious to the risks you're taking, and perhaps even thinking you're pretty damn smart, and then one day, boom, your whole financial life falls apart. Suddenly you discover that you're the idiot who's bought masses of rental properties at the top of the housing market in 2006. You're the one who suddenly has the enormous medical bills that you can't afford to buy. You're the one that owns tech stocks en masse at the beginning of 2000, and you end up losing three quarters of your money. Those are the big potential financial losses, and you need to figure out ways to avoid those big losses. Because if you suffer them, it could set back your financial life by 10 or 15 years. You know, and I think that's really well said, is, I mean, some of these risks that people face, they don't even potentially realize the amount of risk that they're actually taking. 
um, to your point, they, they might think that they're a genius because, hey, look at my balance sheet. It looks pretty good, and I'm taking care of my family. And But all of a sudden, you have either concentrated stock risk or you, you don't have any type of um, ancillary insurances in case your income disappears and you know you can't save any more money and now you're selling that stock when it goes down and you know someone's entire financial house could 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 blow up very very quickly. Um, you wrote another great book. It's the Money Guide. Uh, tell our listeners about that. I mean, anything you ever want to know about money. It's just sitting right here. So I'm a certified financial planner, and I think, Jonathan, you have taught me more in this book uh, than the whole curriculum. So I wrote two editions of The Money Guide. One came out at the beginning of 2015, and the second came out at the beginning of 2016. But putting it out was was a bit of a hairy exercise, because what I would do, uh, and my wife was not entirely happy about this, but what I would do was I'd work on the book through the year, and then on December 31st, after the markets closed, I would start updating all the numbers in the books based on where the financial markets had closed as of December 31st. So there wasn't a lot of champagne drunk that night because I spent hours <laughs> updating the book. Right. And then I would uh, ship it off to Amazon, and the next day it would be available as an ebook and it'd be available as a paperback. Uh, so it was sort of cool. You finish a book one day and it's available for sale the next day. Uh, the downside was it was an enormous amount of work and there was always this risk that something was going to go wrong and I wasn't going to get it out. So what I did was I took that book that I used to charge good money for and I put the entire contents on my website. My website is humbledollar.com. And if you go to that website, that book that was available for free is now on the web that, that I used to charge for is now on the web and available for free. And I update it every day. Every day I'm in there and I'm updating the numbers. I learn something new and I change some of the text. So if you want to look at that book and look at it for free, go to my website. And all you'll have to do is look at a few nasty ads. You can even ignore those if you want. <laughs> and all of the information is there. I mean, I run the website as a public service. I barely break even on it. But what I'm hoping is to take the financial knowledge that I've gathered over more than three decades and make it available for folks so that they can make smarter financial decisions. Hey, Jonathan, tell um, um, we, we got a couple of minutes left here, but um, tell our listeners um, a, a little bit about your story. Um, I've been following you for, for many, many years, um, but uh, I think you, you have an interesting story. One, um, Could you share it with us? Sure. So I spent the past uh, 33 years writing and thinking about money. And for most of that period, I've been a financial journalist. I spent almost 20 years at the Wall Street Journal, where I was the newspaper's personal finance columnist. I also worked for Forbes magazine. Um, but in addition, for six years, I went over to what my friends call the dark side. I spent six years at Citigroup, where I was director of financial education for the U.S. wealth management business. And that gave me a unique perspective on the business. Um, it gave me a lot more respect for what it's like to be a financial advisor and having to help clients. Uh, it made me realize that not everybody can get it done on their own. I spent six years at Citigroup. I got a little bit tired of going to meetings, dealing with lawyers, dealing with compliance people. I'd saved up enough to retire, so I called it quits. Um, I went back and I've been doing some journalism. I now run my own website. I do a certain amount of public speaking um, and I've done a bunch of books. So 
I have a new book coming out in September. It's my ninth uh, book. That's called and it's called From Here to Financial Happiness, and it's a day by day guide on how to get your finances in financial shape. So. That's what I've been doing for the last 33 years. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, so, uh, everyone, you got to check um, the humbledollar.com. Humbledollar.com. I have um, the money guy here that I actually spent some good money on. Uh, I got the 2015 edition, but now I'm just going to go get my updated version uh, for free. Uh, compliments of uh, Jonathan <laughs> uh, Clement. So, humbledollar.com. Any uh, parting uh, words of wisdom that you can share? I think the issue that we've been talking about here, and I would encourage everybody to adopt as their own, is this notion of pausing before financial decisions. And it's not simply that you will make smarter financial decisions if you pause. You actually may find that you get more pleasure from your money. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you're going to plan your next vacation, you should plan it a year ahead of time because that will give you a year during which you can – Imagine all kinds of possible vacations. You can have these wonderful trips in your head, and then once you settle on where you're going to go, you can spend months thinking about what a great time you're going to have. It will, there's great likelihood that that will be the best part of the vacation. Similarly, if you're going to make a major purchase, if you're going to remodel the house, think about it for a year. The period of anticipation will give you great pleasure. Again, maybe even greater pleasure than actually finally buying that new car, buying that new living room furniture, or getting the kitchen remodeled. So pause, take your time, and enjoy that long period of anticipation. That's well said. I'm, I'm is, gonna, I'm, you're, I'm, you're going to Minnesota. You've, you've already thought about that. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm, I'm looking to buy a new set of golf clubs, but I'm telling myself I'm not going to buy them until I reach a certain um, handicap. Yeah, so that's going to be a long time. It's, it's going to be a very long time. It's going to be a very, very long time before I get those new clubs, Jonathan. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> Jonathan Clements, he's um, at thehumbledollar.com. Check that out for sure. Um, and then hopefully we can get you back on the show when your new book comes out. That would be great. Thank you so much for your time, Alan Joe. If you've got a money question, email it to info at purefinancial.com or call 888-994-6257. And Joe and Big Al can answer your question live during Your Money, Your Wealth. Whether it's about taxes, investing, or making sure your portfolio is ready for market volatility as you approach retirement, there's a pretty good chance these fellas can give you the insight that'll help you make better money moves. Email info at purefinancial.com or call 888-994-6257. That's 888-994-6257 or email info at purefinancial.com. Hey, welcome back to the program. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. My name's Joseph Anderson. I'm a certified financial planning professional. Or practitioner. I think that's what it is. Is that what it is? Practitioner or professional? I'm practicing to be a professional. Yeah. Um, I How's with, that going? It's going. It's a process. Al. Yeah. It's a process. Um, and then I'm with Be- uh, Big Al Clopine, Alan Clopine. Uh, he is a CPA. And it's graduation time, Alan. Well, I suppose, yeah. It's a, it's a good reason to discuss helping your kids become financial grown-ups. Okay, that's a good idea. <laughs> I, I need some more of that. <laughs> What, what am I supposed to do? Oh, I got a, a bunch of show prep here that I <laughs> didn't that... really prep much on. <laughs> so you're not going to be able to tell me what to do, how to how to sure prep. I can. I've got a couple questions for you, Al. Okay. Should you consider an IRA for your high school or college graduate? What do you think? Uh, say you. I'd say yes. 
I think that is one of the better gifts that you could possibly give a college graduate. Especially a Roth IRA. But they need income. They need earned income. The problem is, is that, you know... Uh, they're getting full-time jobs, and they still can't fully fund a Roth, right? Because you need at least fifty-five hundred dollars of income. Correct. Yeah, and the jobs aren't paying. Is <laughs> right. what I'm trying to say. Well, there. <laughs> full-time. <laughs> well, I think there's minimum wage. So if I gave a 22-year-old, let's say this. So graduation's coming up. This party's probably this weekend. You might be driving to uh, Little Johnny's graduation party, and if you have a couple uh, Benjamins that you could give out. Let's say you give $5,500 to our young graduate, and so he's got 40 or she's got 45 years till retirement. So you're gonna, he's going to plop that into a Roth IRA, okay. and he's going to let that grow for 45 years. All right. In 45 years, that's a long time, so you could get a little bit aggressive with that. So yeah. I'm going to give that about an 8% rate of return. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. All right. So what you actually gave Junior there is $2.1 million. Really? So if you give $5,500 into a Roth IRA at age 22, give 45 years at age 67, full retirement age, that $5,500 growing at 8% over the next 45 years will be $2.1 million. So that's a better gift than a car. A card or a car? A, a car. <laughs> yes. You don't want to give car. That's a depreciating asset. Right. So you buy, you know, whatever, nice BMW with a bow right, on it. Right. And then yeah, that Well, I'll tell you what, your your graduates going to be more thankful at the moment on the on getting the BMW. It's all about now. Yeah, that's what everyone wants. And then not about tomorrow. Right. Yeah. Right. You got to start looking at the future future self. Yeah, you know, speaking of graduates, I was just in Costco and they have all these um, these flower lays. I guess that a lot of graduates wear the flower lays at, at graduation now. Hmm. Yep. Now, did you? No. I didn't either. No, they weren't around when we a were flower there. flower laid, that's like Hawaii. That's like Hawaii, but that's a common thing. They had a whole bunch of them, and I didn't even make the connection that they that it was you know, for college graduates. What were you thinking, graduates. well, a lot of people are going to Hawaii? I was thinking, <laughs> a, a lay, I got to get one for Annie, because we, she loves, so, so I, I bought one. When I checked out, they said, oh, who's the graduate? I go, what, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> I just like lays. Anyway, I learned, and that's, that, that's how I learned is graduation time, Joe. Oh. Well, I have a story as to someone that did did not successfully get their kid graduate. Do you hear about this? The 30-year-old that got evicted by yes. his parents? Yeah they, yeah, they went to court. Yeah, they went to court and actually evicted him. Yes, and they won. <laughs> they did. They did. And now he's right. He's he's uh, writing a blog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This morning I was reading. What what he here's what he said. He said he said, Well, the reason I, I can't move out is because I'm I've been such a good dad. I've been focusing on, I guess, his son out of you know, you know, not married, but his son or daughter. So he so that's why he couldn't. What are you gonna say son out of wedlock? I was, but I, I realized that was that's my generation. That's why I stopped, Joseph. <laughs> I could tell you're going to. It's like, oh, boy. Here I go. But he's I'm not showing no, my age. no wedding. Yeah, right. All and, right. Anyway, so he's, here, he's a good dad. He's, he's a good, good father. That's why he couldn't work, right? Okay. And so well, he, that, well, that's a good father figure. But then but then, in the next paragraph, it said that he's now banned from seeing the child. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess he wasn't doing a good job. Oh. What? You know, the parents were like, all right, Junior. Can you please um, can you get out? Yeah, take your Volkswagen with you, <laughs> your old Volkswagen. Uh, and they they actually they offered eleven hundred dollars. 
And really? He, and he's now he said, okay, I don't even want to live there anymore since you're evicting me, but it's going to take me a few months, <laughs> is what he said this morning. A few months to move out. <laughs> Got to give me some time. Oh, uh, well, man. That's... So we need your article on how to get your kid to be an adult. Well, there's a couple of things that you could do, right? Yeah. Besides evicting? Pro- pro- yeah. <laughs> I'm... Yeah, I got nothing. I don't have any kids. <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> you just make fun of me when I tell you what I did. It's like, well, you, you need to go to parenting school. <laughs> uh, you, know, you know, the funny thing about parenting is you learn how to parent after you're already done. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so, well, yeah, I should have done that probably. It would have been a really good idea <laughs> when he was 12 to do that. But at 27, yeah. I guess it's better late than never. <laughs> You know, you do your best, right? Oh, that's all you can do. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get into different ways to help uh, young graduates with their financial future. First off, you got to build up that emergency reserve. That's a good idea. Yeah, because I think sometimes they look at, they, they get these credit cards in college. I feel like I'm in, I was just in college. It's like, right. yeah, you know, they get these credit cards in <laughs> college, those damn hooligans. <laughs> right. And, and you get a free t-shirt if you get a and, and if you I get a credit card. And, and sometimes some people hear the the standard advice, which is save three to six months of your living expenses. But when you're just starting out, it's like that's impossible. Yes. Why? So so start with a couple hundred bucks there and build go. from there. Pay off credit card debt. Here's the deal, though. You've got to focus on. It's not like let's just throw every ounce of extra cash to the credit cards. That's what Dave Ramsey says. You gotta build a cash reserve yeah, first because it, guess what happens? You don't have a cash reserve, you throw everything to a credit card, and then something happens. Yeah. And then you have no crash, and then you just go back to the credit card. So you see the latest study that just came out about half the people in America don't have four hundred dollars for an emergency. Half. Half. All right. Um, so we're talking to you, I guess. Stash two hundred and fifty bucks a month in a Roth IRA. We talked about that. $5,500, 45 years, will turn yeah. into $2.1 million. That's a good at plan. 7, 8%. You got to get health insurance. Yeah. If you're not employed with health insurance, you got to buy health insurance you know, yourself. One of my good buddies, he's uh, self employed. He is a, um, well, he works for, um, uh, as a contractor for TaylorMade. Right. You know, the golf company? Yes, yeah. And so he tests their new equipment. Okay. So, like, that's a tough job. The M2. Well, he's <laughs> me, a really good let me, golfer. Let me go out of the course and test your equipment <laughs> right? day after right. day. Right. So he's testing stuff that to see if they want to go to market with it. Yeah. Right. So he's hooked up to all the machines and you know, um, but he doesn't have health insurance. Right. And he blew. And then he was working out. He hurt his um, tricep, elbow, and I'm like, right. well, dude, just go to the doctor. I can't, can't afford it. Can't do it. That's it for us today. Thanks for listening. For Big Al Clopine, I'm Joe Anderson. The show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. We'll see you next time. Now, it's worth noting that if your grad never puts any more money into that Roth IRA, your $5,500 graduation gift, earning 8%, will grow to $175,562 in 45 years. That gift will be worth $2.1 million if the grad continues to save $5,500 into the Roth each year for the next 45 years. And remember, they can add another $1,000 a year from the age of 50. That should help turn them into a financial grown-up, and then maybe they'll be able to afford health care. For more on the Roth IRA, click special offer at yourmoneyyourwealth.com and download the free white paper. Special thanks to today's guest, Jonathan Clements. For more financial wisdom from Jonathan, visit humbledollar.com. 
Subscribe to this podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher. If you've got a burning money question for Joe and Big Al to answer live on Your Money, Your Wealth, just email info at purefinancial.com or call 888-994-6257. Listen next time for more Your Money, Your Wealth presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free financial assessment, visit purefinancial.com. Here comes the disclosure. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. 